Hello and welcome to the Ranking the Albums podcast. This time I'm ranking the albums of an obscure English beat combo, The Beatles. Yes, inevitably I'd soon have to rank the albums of the band who are probably the ultimate album act. They were a complete band in many ways, but I, but what I think makes them so distinctive is, is their combination of John Lennon's grit and invention vocally and lyrically, Paul McCartney's natural gift for melody, and his astute ability to embellish tracks with counter melodies. There's also George Harrison's sensitive guitar playing and his own unmistakable songwriting and Ringo Starr's unobtrusive drumming. They set the standard for introducing sonic detail into their recordings, playing with song structures and imbuing their songs with messages either direct or coded. Eventually the Beatles were integral in helping us conceive the album um, as a kind of musical journey, or trip as they would say, rather than simply a selection of 12 songs or so of, of varying quality. In doing so, their unique creativity set the artistic standard for what the album could be. As I've mentioned before on this podcast in the early to mid-60s, US and UK album releases often didn't have matching track listings, in the Beatles' case, for the most part, I'll be looking at their UK releases, which are now considered canonical. There's 13 albums, but plenty to talk about, so let's start with the album that nearly everyone recognises as the worst Beatles album. At number 13, it's Yellow Submarine. Released in 1969, it's the soundtrack for the 1968 cartoon film, um, while most of the music was actually recorded in 1967. The Beatles themselves didn't lend their voices to the film, so it's no surprise their commitment to the soundtrack was pretty half-arsed. In fact, it's only half a Beatles LP. There are only four original Beatles tracks here, plus a number of orchestrations by their producer George Martin. There are two previously released tracks, Yellow Submarine and All You Need Is Love. There are two George Harrison tracks, including the feedback-laden rave, It's All Too Much, which sounds very ahead of its time, but at a plodding six minutes, it's dull unless you've taken a mind-altering substance. The deliberately off-key and cynical Only a Northern song purposely uses dissonant chords, and it seems to be a kind of anti-song. All Together Now is a charmless, child-friendly novelty track, but Hey Bulldog is, is an outstanding song, with its pounding piano riff and biting guitars. Lennon and McCartney trade ecstatic canine impersonations over its tight groove. But Yellow Submarine is for Beatles completists only. At number 12, I've placed Beatles for Sale, uh, the band's fourth record released in 1964. Um, it came after A Hard Day's Night, um, an album featuring all original material. The reliance on cover versions on Beatles for Sale is, is inevitably disappointing. And they're mostly rock and roll covers of uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly and Carl Perkins but they're just less convincing than they are on previous records, and they contrast harshly in comparison to the rather good originals. Um, they aren't played with great excitement or conviction, which probably indicates the band thought this record was a backward step creatively. Exhausted by their touring commitments and international fame, the Beatles' ability to sustain quality over the course of an entire album suffers, and this record ends up feeling pretty uneven. The opening track is my favourite, the tension and release bossa nova drama of No Reply. That's followed by the joyously freewheeling, albeit self-pitying folk rock of I'm a Loser, 
um, a Lennon song appended by McCartney's walking bass and Harrison's uh, rockabilly twang. Babies in Black um, is a country waltz and it completes a Dylan-influenced, lyrically downbeat trilogy of songs um, written by John. McCartney's originals are relatively mellow and include the pretty-sounding I'll Follow the Sun and Every Little Thing. One of the covers stands out. Mr Moonlight's hilarious hamminess is a forerunner of the kind of goofball tracks the band were only too eager to indulge us with in their psychedelic phase. Beatles for Sale is by no means a bad album. It's the first of their post-Beatlemania so-called mature phase. Harrison's guitar chimes and the breezy acoustic sound of this record no doubt influenced the birds hugely. And the album shares an autumnal quality that Rubber Soul also has. It's not without merit, but it is a relatively weak effort from this most consistent of bands. One of the most divisive Beatles albums is the final one they released, although the second to last to be recorded. At number 11, it's Let It Be, released in 1970. Recorded in early 1969, the original conception for Let It Be was envisaged by Paul. The band would release an album called Get Back, in which they'd get back in touch with their rock and roll roots. That would mean the songs would be performed honestly, in other words, live in the studio with no effects or overdubs. They'd also film the sessions in a vast, cold studio in Twickenham for the film Let It Be. On the back of the White Album, where inter-band relationships had strained considerably, many accounts of the sessions suggest they were frosty and acrimonious. Initially, the material the band recorded for the Get Back album wasn't seen fit for immediate release, and they proceeded to record the Abbey Road album while the film lay on the cutting room floor until 1970. In the end, only seven tracks were live performances, in accordance with the original album concept. After two or three versions of the album were rejected by the group, in 1970, John Lennon enlisted Phil Spector to not so much produce the album as much as completely remix a few remaining songs, such as Across the Universe. Spectre's involvement disrupted Paul's original concept, hence the change of title, but John argued the original recordings were fairly lousy. To this day, Paul remains dissatisfied with how the album turned out. The 2003 remix, Let It Be Naked, is closer to his intention. And it's true, Spectre's strings and backing vocals are saccharine, they overwhelm Lennon's Across the Universe, as well as McCartney's The Long and Winding Road, but those tracks are already nodding in a dreary direction, so it's hardly fair to say the producer ruined them. One After 909 and For You Blue are very basic 12-bar blues tracks, and give the impression the band weren't hugely invested in this record. But clearly they are enjoying themselves on I've Got a Feeling and Get Back, and they show heart on the more grounded, universal ballads. Two of Us, a wistful duet between Lennon and McCartney, is mistakenly thought to be about the two of them. It was actually written by Paul about his new love, Linda. Let It Be, the song is an obvious highlight. The band's performance, and especially Ringo's drumming in the final verse, is sensitive and intricate enough to distract from what is, let's be honest, quite a repetitive melody, albeit a classic one. Something that makes this album distinctive is Lennon's oddball ad-libs in between songs that give it a sense of continuity with the White Album's absurd humour. Despite its dodgy reputation, Let It Be still has its moments. 
Billy Preston's sparingly used keyboard is pretty great, and Spectre's bombastic reproduction is only sparingly noticeable, and it works well on the more dynamic tracks like Harrison's I, Me, Mine. Ultimately, this album would have been much stronger had they included tracks like Don't Let Me Down and Old Brown Shoe, which were mystifyingly relegated to B-sides. But compared to the immaculately presented Abbey Road, this record just feels haphazardly assembled, and the songwriting quality is often missing. It also marks the Beatles following a trend rather than setting one, having taken their cues from the honest back-to-basics approach of the band's influential Music from Big Pink, released in 1968. I think I've covered the uneven and slightly weaker Beatles albums, now moving on to a couple of their earlier albums, which I think are strong considering the musical landscape of the early 60s. At number 10, I've gone for Please Please Me, the band's debut album from 1963. The lion's share of this album was recorded mostly in one session over 12 hours long. It's astonishing they managed to keep up such momentum for the best part of a day. And the record's rushed nature is central to the album's charm and urgency. At certain points, the fluffed notes make the band sound like a work in progress rather than a fully formed entity. That said, it's more of a live album than Let It Be is, and the band sound invigorated by the opportunity to record their first album. That's apparent right from the opening track, I saw her standing there, full of swaggering confidence and propulsive exuberance, driven by McCartney's superb rock and roll bass line. Even within the band's discography, Please Please Me, the title track is one of their best all-round performances as a unit. Ringo's drumming is breathless and exceptional. However, the album was recorded back in the day when cover versions were expected of bands. Some of the material here, while chosen to show the Beatles' range in their repertoire, feels forced and cutesy. And this reliance on covers does a disservice to Lennon and McCartney's nascent and undeniable songwriting abilities. On the other hand, some of the Beatles' early originals are sickeningly twee, Ask Me Why being one of the chief culprits. Love Me Do is notable for being their first single rather than an example of their compositional genius. There are some really underrated tunes, primarily written by John, like Misery and There's a Place, which debunk the idea of early Beatles songs being empty-headed cute love songs. Lennon's throat-shedding vocals on Twist and Shout bring the record to a suitable climax. With only the occasional piano overdub, this is the most unadorned Beatles record, and I love its rawness and complete lack of pretension. Lennon and McCartney's close harmonies are the best thing about this record, the sourness of Lennon's vocals contrasting effectively with McCartney's sweetness. When doing these podcasts, I doubt there'll be many albums ranked 10th that are as strong as this one. In itself, that's testament to the Beatles' talents. But Please Please Me is definitely overshadowed by their later work. It's fair to say the band at this point in time are exceptional imitators of various early 60s styles, with the ability to write outstanding originals too. But with later records they start to lead rather than merely follow. With the bulk of the material written by John and Paul, Please Please Me can still credibly be seen as a game-changing album in modern music's history, and it's a very joyful record, as is their second record, which I'm ranking at number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. It's uh, With the Beatles, released in 1963. In many ways, it isn't a major departure from Please Please Me, more of a refinement of the Beatles' early sound. It consists of some great originals, some juvenile originals, 
and their various cover versions. Like Beatles for Sale, there's a trio of great originals that kick off the album, the ecstatically raunchy It Won't Be Long, the stop-start All I've Got To Do, and the infectious All My Loving. There is some progression from Please Please Me, in that there's a greater degree of moodiness, best represented by the iconic chiaroscuro cover art that contrasted with the band's cheeky public persona. Latin grooves feature on the record too, firstly with the rather slapdash Ringo sung effort, unfortunately titled Little Child. There's the far superior Don't Bother Me, George Harrison's first recorded song, with its minor key rumbling guitars and an unbelievably prickly lyric from a boy band member. On the whole, the cover songs are better on this record than on their debut. Till There Was You features a really tricky acoustic guitar solo from George and affected vowels in Paul's singing. Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven is a misstep, and I'm not keen on the lightweight fluff of Hold Me Tight, one of their originals. But the final two tracks round the album off well, the melodically unpredictable Not A Second Time, and the surprisingly heavy-sounding cover of Money That's What I Want. This album is a bit of an accompaniment to the main event. Their 1963 and 1964 singles, including From Me To You, She Loves You and I Want To Hold Your Hand, led to chart domination in the UK, and then the so-called British invasion of the United States in early 64. Arguably that's where the real impact happened, but this album still contributed to the Beatlemania phenomenon. That's in no small part due to the variety and versatility displayed on With The Beatles. Moving on now to a few records that are, are mixed bags. They feature some astonishing, groundbreaking music befitting the Beatles' genius status, but these records are tarred by some fairly lazy material too. At number eight, I've gone for Help, released in 1965, obviously from their mid-60s period where the band are exhausted from fame and touring and they're starting to experiment with drugs. Like A Hard Day's Night, the first side of the Help album consists of materials written for the accompanying Help film. And with this one they're starting to experiment a little more with their arrangements. Uh, Yesterday is the first song of theirs to feature a string quartet, and only one of the Beatles. The album as a whole is a bit like Beatles for Sale and Rubber Soul in that it shows the influence of Dylan, particularly on, on Lennon's You've Gotta Hide Your Love Away, and of folk rock more generally. Many of the tunes have acoustic guitar as the primary instrument. As such, you can tell the band were keen to be taken as more mature artists, but hadn't fully abandoned the core sound or sensibilities of their Beatlemania phase. It's not just the sound, the lyrics are more introspective and despairing than the stereotype of Beatlemania would suggest. With the title track, the effortlessly melodic tune somewhat conceals the desperate cry for help evident in the lyrics. More ambiguous is You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, a Dylan-esque track widely rumoured to be written about Brian Epstein, uh, the band's manager, and his homosexuality. Aside from the clumsy closer Dizzy Miss Lizzie, all the tracks are originals, with a couple from George Harrison. Firstly, there's I Need You, with its unusual guitar pedal effect, and it's a rare George song to cover boy-girl relationships. Harrison also offers You Like Me Too Much, but it's a pretty simplistic and lightweight song. Lennon's lyrics on It's Only Love are also laughably childish. I get high when I see you go by, my oh my. When you sigh, my inside just flies, butterflies. In fact, other than McCartney's Yesterday and the joyous skiffle track I've just seen a face, the second side of the LP just contains a few songs that are found wanting lyrically and melodically. Which makes Help a frustrating listen considering the advances made in the best of their material. 
One of the standout tracks is Ticket to Ride, in which Lennon's guitar drone, Harrison's chiming arpeggios, and Ringo's stuttering drum pattern carve a new, distinctive, and surprisingly heavy sound for its time. Bizarrely, the riotously fun rocker I'm Down and the melancholic ballad Yes It Is were recorded around this time in 1965 but only released as B-sides, so like Let It Be, Help could have been a much stronger album. Help is like their other mid-period LPs in the sense that it's a transitional album between Beatlemania and their later experimental studio period. Despite some lazy songwriting, because of its occasional despair and innovations, Help is an interesting and sometimes captivating record all the same. This next placing is likely to be the most controversial placing of the entire list, and I'd expect many people to disagree with it. It's the much-loved Rubber Soul at number 7. It was released in 1965, and it's known to be one of the albums to define the album as a form. And it was hugely influential on contemporary artists at the time, as music historian Bill Martin observes, the album rather than the song became the basic unit of artistic production. Obviously, mine is a subjective assessment, but I'd say Rubber Soul isn't as amazingly varied, mature, considered or consistent as most reviews of the album would suggest. While of course it had influence, it's worth considering that by the time of its release, Bob Dylan had already released Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited, both mature, considered and consistent albums. Rubber Soul sees the band diversifying their sound, which is immediately apparent on Drive My Car. The opening track is a pastiche of Stax and Southern Soul music. With its knotty riff and slide guitar solos, it's catchy but ultimately quite an unrepresentative song on this record. The next tune, Norwegian Wood, throws a curveball with its innovative use of sitar to underpin its acoustic folk arrangement. On the other hand, its cryptic lyrics about an extramarital affair aren't amazingly mature. Then there's a number of tonally downbeat and melodically unadventurous songs that take the momentum out of the album. You Won't See Me, with its aura of male entitlement, drags on for a whole three minutes. Nowhere Man is similarly self-pitying in minor key, released only by Harrison and Lennon's bright dual guitars in the instrumental. Harrison's Think For Yourself, with its stuttering rhythm and fuzz bass, is cool at first, but as a song it's melodically convoluted and dreary. The first half of the record does improve with the irrepressible R&B of the word. Lennon and McCartney only used one chord in this tune, but Ringo's drumming and the bright harmonies mean it's anything but stale. McCartney's franglais pastiche Michelle closes the first side. It features the rather meta line, Michelle, my belle, these are words that go together well, which is typical of McCartney's cheeky approach to lyric writing. The finger-picking arrangement is sublime, along with the harmonies and Harrison's guitar solo, although supposedly George Martin suggested the notes to him. What goes on is like Act Naturally from Help in that it's a mandatory country and western tune sung by Ringo. It lumbers on for nearly three minutes with pretty much the same melody throughout. A highlight of the record is Girl. While McCartney's Michelle is breezy, Girl is hard-bitten and angsty. Its minor chords and Greek folk influence give the song an enigmatic and dramatic quality, and finally suggests a huge leap forward in their songwriting. Arguably, the record's masterpiece is In My Life, with its nostalgic lyrics heightened by a stately guitar lick, watertight harmonies and Ringo's hi-hat and snare. George Martin's sped-up majestic classical piano solo is the most elegant moment of the record. Lennon's lyric is personal and relatable, 
touching on memories, places, people, love and loss, is one of his simplest and one of his best lyrics. After Those Heights, Wait is a decent but low-key song that was rejected from the Help album, um, which doesn't exactly suggest the band thought they were at the height of their creativity with this album. Run For Your Life is an abominable mess of a tune in which we're treated some, to some rampant misogyny from Leonard for good measure. George Martin said it was always a principle of his when he came to assemble an album to always go out on the side strongly, placing the weaker material towards the end of, of the record, but then going out with a bang on the last track. And that really isn't the case with Rubber Soul. And that isn't to say that Rubber Soul isn't a great album, or even not an important one. It's just not that much of a musical leap ahead in the way that Revolver was. The increasingly diverse and mature sounding approach is why this album is so revered, along with its angstier lyrics. For me though, it only has a couple of songs that really blow me away, and on their better albums I find the weaker songs more entertaining. This album just doesn't have the same sense of fun that you find on virtually every other Beatles album, and that's why I don't quite rate it as highly as others do. At number 6 I've gone for Magical Mystery Tour, released in 1967. Now this is a strange one in their discography. The UK version of this record was released as an EP, or a short playing record of six tracks. In the US it was released as a proper album, containing singles released over the course of 1967 on the second side. While the UK version of Beatles releases have subsequently become canonical in the Beatles discography, this is the one exception where the US version is now treated as the official release. The first side of the record as we know it uh, now consists of material written for the Beatles psychedelic Christmas TV special, which was hastily conceived and filmed for broadcast on the BBC um, at Christmas 1967. The film was an indulgent, incoherent mess, and in some ways the album is too, uh, but it works as a bit of a selection box of psychedelic music. Paul McCartney conceived of the fairly self-explanatory concept and the title track, uh, which is a similar introductory track to uh, the Sgt Pepper album in that it sets up the concept and combines music hall elements, ringmaster calls and, and psychedelic elements. It's quite a, a slight tune, but it's made up for by its colourful arrangement. McCartney also wrote The Fall on the Hill, which is a kind of thematic cousin to John Lennon's Nowhere Man from Rubber Soul. Despite its cooing flutes and parping bass harmonica, it's a melodically rich and a surprisingly quite an enigmatic tune for, for Paul McCartney. Less successful is Paul's obligatory granny music, uh, which takes the form of Your Mother Should Know, which is supremely repetitive and irritating. Flying is a quirky interlude instrumental, and Blue Jay Way is a hazy Harrison tune. It has a, a winding, dirge-like, eastern-sounding melody, um, and it almost certainly won't be to everybody's taste. The highlight of the soundtrack is Lennon's surrealistic opus, I Am the Walrus. It has a sing-song, childish melody, and gobbledygook, Lewis Carroll-inspired lyrics, and these mix well with a snarling vocal and daring chord progression. It culminates in a seemingly never-ending crescendo. It would sound terrifying if it wasn't slyly undercut by the backing vocalist dementedly singing Oompa Oompa, Stick It Up Your Jumper. On the second side, there are the 1967 singles, and these are presented in non-chronological order. So the last single to be released, Hello Goodbye, is the first track you hear. Um, and the song would be an irritating exercise in word association, if not for the vivid arrangement. Songwriting-wise, it's nothing special, but as a record, as a single, it works really well, which really speaks for the Beatles' talents as, as arrangers. 
and Hello Goodbye and Strawberry Fills Forever are, are notable for their false endings and codas. And the latter song was written by Lennon in 1966 and recorded during the Sgt. Pepper sessions. And it's a landmark moment, the single that provided a decisive break from the previously released material. Its theme is the utter confusion of childhood, but it's seen through the prism of the adult Lennon's drug-addled mind. Alongside A Day in the Life from Sgt. Pepper, for me it represents the zenith of the Beatles' artistic achievements. The sonic detail in this recording is astonishing, its radical use of edits, varying the speed of the vocals, the, the Indian instrumentation, the funereal-like uh, brass and the foreboding cello. It, it makes it a quintessential listening to headphones in a dark experience. Strawberry Fields Forever was released as a double A-side, another thing the Beatles innovated. The flip side was Penny Lane, in which Paul McCartney brings a substantial amount of light after Lennon's darkness. It's an untroubled, joyful nostalgia for an idealised Liverpoolian childhood, and that's captured by the gorgeous sunshine of the arrangement. Baby You're a Rich Man is another tune where the arrangement is more enthralling than the tune itself, uh, with Lennon's wailing clavier line, a kind of a theremin, uh, and McCartney's robust bass really standing out. The album closes with All You Need Is Love, the song kind of said to typify the Beatles' overall message, although I find that a little simplistic in reality. The song itself is a little too flowery and plodding for me. The fact that it was recorded live makes it sound a little thin and out of joint compared to the intricacies of the studio recordings found on, on the rest of the Magical Mystery Tour record. 1967 was undoubtedly the year of the Beatles' most imaginative music and a Magical Mystery Tour is very much part of the band's mid to late 60s creative peak. And despite its ragbag form, the originality and sonic detail of these recordings make it an essential and vastly underrated listen. Only its haphazard conception and its part compilation state has prevented it from being more highly rated, in my opinion. Any record with I Am The Walrus, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane deserves great admiration and praise. At number five, perhaps a surprising choice, is A Hard Day's Night from 1964. This record, for me, is the high-water mark of the Beatles' early years. They capitalised on their previous success with their first film, and this soundtrack is their first album of all original material. More so than any other record, John Lennon dominates this album. He's the lead writer on ten of the tracks. And even if the record doesn't have a great degree of depth or great meaning, it is thoroughly enjoyable and fun, like their first two records, but more consistent. The iconic opening chord leads to the insistent rush of the title track. Notably, the track fades out with Harrison's gleaming arpeggios. The idea of having an instrumental opening and a sort of coda to an individual track originates in the Beatles' music here. Unconventional song structure is also integral to If I Fell, with its standalone opening stanza, intricate harmonies and a lack of chorus, the track betrays the influence of Roy Orbison and the Everly Brothers, but it's distinctly the Beatles. Even on weaker tracks like Tell Me Why, I'm Happy Just To Dance With You and When I Get Home, the band have a rambunctious energy and a slight rawness to the vocals and performances. Although Lennon dominates this album, McCartney's three contributions are all brilliant. And I Love Her with, his, with its moody chords and Harrison's resonant acoustic guitar is a fine ballad. Can't Buy Me Love is both a swinging, jolly, catchy tune and the first of several Beatles songs to be about money in a way that feels entirely tactless. 
Things We Said Today is an underrated, mature song on paper. Its its lyrics sound like they'd be quite fluffy if placed alongside a jauntier tune. But the arrangement is really moody with jagged acoustic chords and an echoing, sonorous piano. McCartney seems to sing through gritted teeth in the lines, Me, I'm just the lucky kind. The future nostalgia of the lyrics is a unique perspective for an early 60s love song. Someday when we're dreaming, deep in love, not a lot to say, then we will remember things we said today. The first half of the record features songs included in the film, which incidentally is also the best Beatles film, a feel-good movie with plenty of sly humour. But the Beatles keep up their, their momentum on the second half of the record. Most bands would happily have released tracks like Any Time At All, When I Get Home, and You Can't Do That as singles. All of the Beatles' mid-period albums feature a country and western-inspired song, and the only one that's any good is on this album in the form of I'll Cry Instead. The closing track, I'll Be Back, is excellent with its moody, almost flamenco sound. Like If I Fell, there's no chorus, and unusually it has two different middle eights. For me, it's one of the Beatles' most underrated tunes. A Hard Day's Night tends not to be as highly rated as their other albums. I think that's in part because the innovations of the record are a little more subtle. They're in the song structures and chords rather than in the instrumentation, or due to any production tricks. Early Beatles um, songs tend to be dismissed for being lightweight fluff for teeny boppers, but I've always thought that's a bit narrow-minded, and it doesn't understand the constraints imposed um, by a, a fusty and conservative recording industry, an industry their music progressively radicalised. A Hard Day's Night represents a hugely significant achievement for original songwriters in bands. Of course, Lennon and McCartney were already known for writing their own hits by this time, but this was the first time they managed to stretch it out across an entire album, something they couldn't even manage for their next two records. It's an album stacked with great original tunes, not lasting more than three minutes, played on guitar by a rock group. In that sense, it established a winning formula for the album format. And while in some ways it is the band's most straightforward album, it's also one of their most consistent and cohesive albums. The final four albums on my list are among the best albums ever released. Such is their quality and influence, it's tempting to rank them all equally, but alas, I'm going to have to rank them. So at number four, it's a favourite of many listeners, crisply produced and lovingly made. It's the Beatles' finally recorded album, Abbey Road, released in 1969. This album is undoubtedly a classic, and I think that's clear even from the very first few busy seconds of Come Together, the Beatles' smooth take on blues rock, and one of their best all-around band performances. This album is known to be the one where the highlights are George Harrison's songs, uh, suggesting he was finally an equal songwriting-wise with, with Paul and John. Something, his elegant orchestrated ballad, which is tied together with its guitar lick, um, is fantastic. Frank Sinatra said it was the best Lennon McCartney tune. I'm not sure whether Harrison took it as a backhanded compliment or as an insult. In stark contrast is the next track, McCartney's Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which is probably the most inexplicable song ever recorded, and certainly a blight upon this record. Paul insisted the band spend more time on this song than any other during this time period, which I think more than anything explains the Beatles' breakup. Paul sort of redeems himself with the scream along Oh Darling, that's followed by Ringo's surprisingly radiant Octopus's Garden. John Lennon's I Want You, She's So Heavy is, as the title suggests, one of the heaviest Beatles songs. It shapeshifts between a Latin Santana-esque groove and a doomy guitar figure that stretches out for nearly eight minutes, uh, with lots of synthesised white noise being thrown into the mix until it's 
abrupt surprise ending. It's the most outrageous song on an album that mostly dispenses with studio experimentation. In contrast, the first song on the second side of the record, Here Comes the Sun, feels like opening a window in a stuffy room. It's arguably George's most beloved song, and it comes as a welcome start to the second side of the record. The next tune, Because, combines a classical melody with impeccable, gorgeous close harmonies. But arguably the highlight of side two is You Never Give Me Your Money. It's like the album in microcosm, like a medley of various mini-songs in itself. Lennon has three tracks in a row that are basically fragments, the Santana-esque, Sun King, Mean Mr Mustard and Polythene Pam. Paul's songs are a little bit more complex, like She Came In Through the Bathroom Window and and Golden Slumbers, which is a kind of attempt to write a pre-Beatles classic ballad. With Paul's songs, the medley takes on far more emotional heft by this point, and there's plenty of sudden mood changes and reprises of songs and motifs found earlier in the medley. And it's a supreme achievement, um, although it is mainly... Paul McCartney's achievement. The final track, The End, really provides a wholly befitting conclusion to the Beatles' output, with its alternating solos between each band member and its curious summation of the Beatles' message, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I can totally see why people adore this album so much. It's bright, tuneful songs, careful assembly, and the, and the novelty of the medley does make it a much more modern-sounding and fresh-sounding record compared to their obviously more dated psychedelic albums. But, you know, for me, I tend to think of it as just a little less inspired and, and original than their top three. I know I'm being harsh on it. Um, the pristine production, I mean, it's, it's right up there with, with Sgt Pepper in terms of it being the best-sounding Beatles record. Um, and the medley, the production, the care put into this album make it feel really well-crafted and cohesive. At number three, I'm placing Revolver from 1966, the Beatles' seventh album. It's the first to benefit from the band's willingness to exploit the recording studio to make truly original music. What marks this album as special is its combination of uniquely mid-60s optimism and its daring experimentation. The first side of the record consists of songs that present a firm break with the Beatles' previous work. Taxman represents their first foray into political issues, in which millionaire George Harrison unleashes a whinge about high taxes. The age-old theme is made appealing by Paul's nimble bass, the offbeat guitar and a solid backbeat. The blistering Indian-sounding guitar solo played by Paul is superlative. Eleanor Rigby provides an immediate contrast. Easily the most austere track written by the Beatles is the first Beatles track to not include guitars, with a string quartet mimicking Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho as Paul evokes the tragedy of loneliness in old age. It's a stunning song. John's first song on the record is relatively relaxed. I'm only sleeping with its drowsy, happy melody and soothing harmonies. The untethered, innovative backwards guitar textures really make this song a treat. Harrison's Love You Too is, is one of the record's most radical tracks in that it's constructed entirely around Indian instrumentation. Here, There and Everywhere is a, a gentle love song written by McCartney, featuring four freshman-like backing vocals, inspired by the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album. Compared to the previous four songs on the record, it sounds relatively conservative, and its prettiness converge on the saccharine. But it's a fine McCartney composition, with a great chord progression. 
Yellow Submarine is another curveball on this record, a children's song sung by Ringo. It's obviously lightweight crap, but clearly you should take it on its own terms rather than as a serious composition. Although it did win an Ivor Novello award, so what do I know? She Said, She Said, with its famous lyric, I Know What It's Like To Be Dead, is more typical of songs on the second side, with its chiming guitars, druggy melody, and Ringo's idiosyncratic drum fills. The second side of the record starts with the light-hearted rolling piano track, Goodbye Sunshine, with its unexpected key changes. And Your Bird Can Sing sustains the sunniness, with Paul's melodic bass playing anchoring the swooping, ringing guitars. For No One, a Baroque waltz, is McCartney's best composition on the record, along with Eleanor Rigby. Alan Civil's French horn provides gorgeous counterpoint. Dr. Robert is a relatively simple Lennon track, with Harrison's glistening guitar combining Indian and country and western influences, and that's particularly inspired, just like his guitar twang on I Want to Tell You. Got to Get You Into My Life is another homage to soul music, and an ode to marijuana apparently, and it could have been a hit in its own right. But the jewel in the crown of this record is the finale, Tomorrow Never Knows, in which John Lennon recites passages from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. With its pioneering, head-spinning use of samples, tape loops and studio effects, and the looping, non-standard drum pattern, Tomorrow Never Knows is an extremely avant-garde piece for a mainstream pop band, and it's a landmark moment in electronic and dance music in its own right. It's an unbelievable closer on, on what is already a daring but enthralling album. Paul McCartney particularly blossoms on this record. Unlike on Rubber Soul, McCartney's songwriting and embellishments are first class. Likewise, Harrison's compositions are also much more consistent and interesting than on previous records. Lennon's tracks, as expected, are uniformly great too. The only real downsides of this album are Yellow Submarine, obviously, and the fact that uh, the band have yet to really master editing. There's a few noticeable errors and blips in the recording that can be distracting. But I feel this is overall forgivable considering the Beatles' creative breakthroughs were found precisely uh, because they were tinkering about in the studio. That tinkering eventually led to the record that is my number two choice, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, released in 1967, aka the most famous album ever. Sgt Pepper's critical reputation has ebbed and flowed over the years. On its release, it was a genuine cultural moment, and its influence as a totemic pinnacle of popular music pervaded throughout the era of the album in the 1970s too. In more recent decades, there have been understandable criticisms of the album as contrived and placing style over substance. I don't think these criticisms are invalid. It is admittedly a half-baked concept, stemming from Paul McCartney's idea to produce um, the material as a performance by the fictional Sgt Pepper band. As this new band, they'd incorporate a diverse range of stylistic influences, including vaudeville, circus music, music hall, the avant-garde, and Western and Indian classical music. They'd give themselves even more studio time than Revolver to produce something really out there and original. By adopting this new guy as an approach, this would allow the Beatles to write beyond the confines of audience expectations and allow them to reinvent how they presented themselves. And in some ways, this is one of its most significant influences. To this day, artists and celebrities continue to reinvent themselves and adopt different contrived personas. The album allowed the Beatles to appear modern and traditional at the same time. They represented styles and sentiments fashionable prior to the brave new world of the 60s, while also being figureheads for the peace and love movement, often through coded references to drugs and disguised humour. 
While the process of not just writing a bunch of lightweight love songs was adopted on Rubber Soul and Revolver, there's not a song on this album that concerns love as its main theme. That's apparent from The Off, in which Paul introduces the eponymous Lonely Hearts Club Band. The sizzling guitar licks and parping brass band weave together the modern and old styles that the Beatles return to throughout the record. Ringo's slightly droll vocals on With A Little Help From My Friends are elevated by the band's harmonies and some tasty bass playing. Lucy in the Sky With Diamonds, with its hypnotic keyboard pattern, is one of the most trippy moments here. Despite John's Lewis Carroll-inspired psychedelic lyrics, he was adamant the song wasn't about LSD. Getting Better is a more conventional, and typically sprightly, McCartney tune. It's highly percussive and brimming with sonic detail, with swirling Indian instrumentation, alongside the staccato guitars and pianos. Lennon's regretful reference to wife-beating sours the effervescence somewhat. Fixing a Hole is a similar track rhythmically, driven by harpsichord and Harrison's crisply toned guitar. She's Leaving Home is the highlight of the first side for me, a Baroque ballad written from the perspective of worried, compassionate parents whose teenage daughter runs away from home. Paul's lyrics are among his best. He dramatises the values gap between generations, in a song that is in many ways comparable to Eleanor Rigby. In the chorus, John's wry counter-melody anchors McCartney's aching falsetto, and it's an incredibly gorgeous moment. Lennon's being for the benefit of Mr. Kite brings the album back onto strange terrain, its carnival of effects providing pure ear candy. Within You Without You, George's sole contribution is often dismissed for its length, its noodling sitars, and its overly earnest philosophical message, but I think it's a key track on the, on the Sergeant Pepper journey. The track ends to the sound of embarrassed laughter, and I'm not sure if this is meant to be the audience at the Imagine Sergeant Pepper concert. It soon transitions into the musical equivalent of, of Meat and Two Potatoes, McCartney's crowd-pleasing When I'm 64. It's easy to dismiss this song as Paul's granny music, and compared to the flower power sentiments of The Summer of Love, it's deeply unfashionable. But it contains a more enduring and down-to-earth sentiment, even if its slightly smug, northern, music hall style isn't to everyone's taste. Lovely Rita balances the album's contrasting styles with an overly polite lyric, full of sexual and druggy innuendos, taking trips and taking tea with a sister or two. It culminates in a Frank Zappa-esque freakout at the end. Good Morning, Good Morning, written by Lennon, isn't a great song, but its distorted horns, blistering drums and odd time signatures make it entertaining enough. The chaotic sounds of animals at the end of the song is a nod to pet sounds by the Beach Boys. The punchy reprise of the Sgt. Pepper theme seems to have only been included to remind listeners about the album's loose concept that's kind of been lost along the way. And it's true that few of the best Beatles songs are on this record. Many still complain about how Strawberry Fields Forever was left off this album, yet Side 2's run of decent but hardly knockout tracks is entirely deliberate. It's a classic example of George Martin's philosophy of ending albums on a high after a run of weaker material. A Day in the Life has Lennon recounting stories seen in a newspaper, with a jaunty midsection about catching the bus provided by McCartney. The key to this song is its distinctly English melancholy. It may concern humdrum, mundane, everyday life experiences, but its almost cinematic arrangement hints at something more transcendental and disturbing. Every element in this song is so well put together, the chord progression, John's dispassionate vocal, the dramatic drum fills, the bell-like piano, and of course the nightmarish orchestral glissandos. 
before concluding with a captivating piano chord that sustains for a full 40 seconds. As an individual song, it's the peak of the Beatles' creativity, and it makes you reevaluate the rest of the album before it. Although it's true nothing of its quality exists elsewhere on the album, I think placing A Day in the Life, a song of such quality at the end of the album, somehow manages to elevate Sgt Pepper above most of the Beatles' discography. And sure, the Sgt Pepper concept is hardly fleshed out, but it doesn't really matter. If we can make an excuse for Bowie's Ziggy Stardust, we can excuse Sgt Pepper too. Like Abbey Road, Pepper may not be all killer, no filler, or even have that many of the Beatles' greatest songs, but its construction, its production values are so clever, considered, and well executed. As shown by its much-imitated, iconic cover, Sgt Pepper presents an album as art, but also as a package. Its concept, the way it flows, the way it represents some kind of musical journey or trip, as the hippies would say, still makes it a fascinating listen. It makes me reevaluate what good music is, it's not necessarily the songwriting in itself, but the sheer artistry of putting together pop music. The ability to mix unusual sonic textures and to add diverse and sometimes conflicting tones. When I rank albums on this podcast, there's always a trade-off between simply ranking albums based on how much I enjoyed the record and how significant and influential I feel it is. In this instance, I can't help but rank Sgt Pepper so highly due to its importance to all albums that followed. I may not even be doing this podcast without it. Sentimentality aside, personal enjoyment is ultimately what determines these rankings, which is why my number one is The Beatles from 1968, nearly always referred to as the White Album. As one of the first double albums ever released, listeners consider it either a sprawling mess or an absorbing musical journey. In many ways, this record is the anti Sergeant Pepper. The White Album's cover, a stark white blank slate, it's a minimalist cover where Pepper's cover design is maximalist. Unlike Sgt Pepper's detail, careful craft and pristine production, the White Album sounds deliberately ragged, the bass chugs, and the guitars often sound thin and brittle. Rather than a genuine band effort, songs from the White Album were being recorded by different band members simultaneously in different studios. It wasn't really a genuine full band effort, which partly accounts for its disunited sound. But the White Album's Anything Goes philosophy seems to be just as influential and experimental as Sgt Pepper. Rather than synthesising different styles within a single track, tracks on the White Album stick to a certain genre. Although the breadth of genres covered on this 30-song set make it feel incredibly expansive, there's a Beach Boys parody, British blues, folk music, ska, country, heavy metal, and, of course, Paul's granny music. The common criticism of the White Album is it would be a quality single album, and, much like this very podcast, could have done with some hard editing. But I think this is a bogus criticism. Hardly anyone can agree what the great tracks are and what the bad tracks are. Its selection box quality is part of what makes the album so unique and so fun. Indeed, Savoy Truffle, a song literally about a chocolate selection box, is an example of the band's playful meta-humour. Likewise, Glass Onion, one of the band's most self-referencing songs. There's no shortage of zany material. Wild Honey Pie and its near namesake, Honey Pie, placed as the fifth song and the fifth song from the end of the track listing, respectively. The continuing story of Bungalow Bill is actually one of the most representative songs from the album, demonstrating its abrupt tonal shifts, aura of unease and childish humour. Lennon's excellent Happiness is a Warm Gun is a forerunner of the Abbey Road medley, containing short snippets of four or five mini-songs. 
Four of George's songs appear While My Guitar Gently Weeps features Eric Clapton on guitar. Piggies is a harpsichord-laden mock baroque tune criticising capitalist pigs, and it's an amusing song, especially since Harrison had been berating the taxman only two years previously. As mentioned before, Savoy Truffle, with its distorted horns, is one of the most fun tracks on the record. While Harrison's eerie acoustic number Long 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 is an understated highlight. Among the strange and unsettling, there's moments of haunting loveliness too. Most of these are the acoustic numbers. McCartney's Blackbird, an allegory for the civil rights movement, is one of his best and simplest songs. Likewise, Julia, Lennon's song written to his mother, who died when he was a teenager, explores trauma. The Beatles are at their most hushed and intimate on this album, but it's also their loudest. And the third side of the record has some of the band's best hard rock. Birthday your blues, everybody's got something to hide but me and my monkey, and then there's the hell-raising Helter Skelter, which is a thrilling racket. 1968 was a turbulent year for the world, with uprisings, protests, assassinations, invasions, challenging the hippie idealism of 1967. I said before that Revolver was defined by, by its optimism and innovation. The White Album, in contrast, is defined by chaos and unease. Not all of it is great, like the country hoedown section halfway through the record, and some tracks you really have to be in the right mood for, none more so than the penultimate track and the album's effective climax, Revolution Number no. 9. It's eight minutes of samples and sound effects, and it's an extraordinarily avant-garde piece that still remains hugely unpopular. I'd argue its sound typifies the White Album's turbulence in a way that the Beatles can't quite articulate with their lyrics. The softly spoken final track, Good Night, would be completely schmaltzy had Revolution 9 not been such an ordeal. With Good Night, John Lennon seems to be implying you need a sweetener or some comfort by the time you've reached the end of this record. As the longest Beatles album with the greatest number of excellent Beatles tracks, I have to rank this album first. It's a silly, fun, funny, intimate, raw and in places really frightening record. I remember listening to the White Album as a young kid and being utterly freaked out by it. And that's left an indelible impression. For its scope, diversity, and enduring impact, it remains my favourite ever album. Just a quick look at the Beatles compilations to finish with. The Beatles 1962-1966 collection covers their early and mid-period very well, with all of the singles not featured on albums. Unfortunately, Revolver is very much underrepresented on this compilation. The 1967-1970 collection serves a similar purpose, and is slightly better. Past Masters 1 and 2 feature all the Beatles' singles and b-sides. All the tracks are worth having, but the latter collection is a bit of an uneven listen overall. The compilation 1 is for your basic Beatles fans, it features all of their number 1s, and is for very casual listeners only. The anthology series of studio outtakes is a fascinating insight into the Beatles' creative process, but I'd say it's for completists only. Likewise, Love, a mashup remix album of the Beatles' songs released in 2006, is a fun listen, but probably only for hardcore fans. And that's everything. I hope you took some insights from this podcast and feel inspired to listen to the Beatles afresh. Thanks again for listening. I know it's been a long, long, long podcast this time, so I do thank you. Until next time. Saucy Rim Now.